The Bible is the greatest story ever told, but it can be a little challenging to understand. No worries, though. Today we continue our sermon series, One Story, the story that reveals His glory. We are going to discover how the story of the scripture reveals the glory of Christ. To learn more about freedom, join us on our website at freedombiblechurch.net. Freedom. My name is Eric. I'm the pastor here, and we're grateful for those of you that are joining us live and those that are with us online. And uh, if you're new to Freedom, one of the things that we typically do is we teach through books of the Bible. And uh, right now, what we're doing is we enter into the starting at the beginning of the year. We've been looking at the main story of the Bible because we got to thinking, you know, if we go and dive into each individual book without understanding the whole, then we're going to miss out on what God is speaking through each of those individual stories, each of those individual books. So what we're doing is we're walking through the story of Scripture because the Bible tells one story. From Genesis to Revelation, it is one story, one story of redemption, one story of God moving among His people in order to redeem all that was lost at the fall. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at what we call the meta narrative, the, the big picture, if you will, the storyline of the Bible. And there are six major themes that go along with this made, the storyline of the Bible. There is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's the fall, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebelling against God. In the beginning in Genesis 12, through the end of the Old Testament, what we have are the covenant promises, where God is making promises to his people, and he is remaining faithful to keep those promises. Then we get to the New Testament, and we have redemption through Jesus Christ. We have the mission, which is the church, and then the new creation at the end of the age, when God restores all things and brings about a new creation. That church is the story line of the Bible. And last week, we started looking at the covenant promises. And we're going to continue that this week because Genesis 12 to the end of Malachi is a long section of Scripture. So we broke up the covenant promises in two sections so that we wouldn't be here for four or five hours last weekend. And so we are going to pick up on the covenant promises this week. But last week, just as a reminder, we started looking at this covenant, this promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land, and through you will be a blessing to all people. And we see that promise th thread throughout the entire Old Testament. 
We've talked about the fact that the Old Testament is all about promises made. And the New Testament is all about promises kept. God made promises in the Old Testament that God has kept in the New Testament. And today we're going to pick up with the book of Joshua. And we're going to go from Joshua all the way to Malachi. Now some of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, you're like, alright, that's like 30 plus books. How on earth are we going to cover that much ground in such a short period of time? Well, that's why I asked you to bring your lunch last week. So if you didn't bring your lunch, I apologize. You missed out. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to be here that long. But what we are going to do is we're going to break it down into uh, more manageable sections. So from Joshua to Malachi, what we see is we see the land being given. We see a season of judges. The kingdom of Israel being established. And we see prophets. And so we're going to look at those major sections uh, in the Old Testament this morning. And so what happens, if you're familiar with the story, you know that in the book of Numbers, what happens is they, the Israelites move from Mount Sinai, where they were given the law of Moses, to the border of the promised land. And at the border of the promised land, if you're familiar with the story, they send out 12 spies. 12 spies to go and check out the land, to see what the land is like. And the spies come back with news. They have good news and they have bad news. The good news is the land is amazing. The land is fertile. It is perfect for the nation of Israel to dwell in. But there's bad news. And the bad news is the fact that the land is filled with powerful people and fortified cities. Well, what happens is the nation of Israel freaks out. They, they, they get overcome with fear, and as a result of their fear, their faith begins to diminish. They begin to grumble and complain. Isn't that what happens to us when we start to fear and our faith starts diminishing? We start grumbling and complaining about everything. And that's exactly what they were doing. They started grumbling and complaining. They, they, they even told Moses, said, Moses, God brought us out here just so that we could die. How ridiculous of a statement is that, right? Like God delivered you out of Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. God protected you through this journey just so you could die. But that's what they thought. That's what happens. They started having, because of their fear and because of their diminished faith, they started having irrational thoughts about who God is. And so they begin to think, well, God just is going to bring, brought us out here to die. Well, in response to their unbelief, God makes a vow that that entire generation will not enter the promised land. And so for 40 years, the nation of Israel wanders in the wilderness. For 40 years, they're on the verge, the border of the promised land, just wandering. And they're not allowed to enter because of their unbelief. Now, by the time we get to the book of Joshua, that entire generation has died off. Moses is dead, and the baton of leadership has been passed to Joshua. Under Joshua's leadership, Israel takes possession of the land. But the story makes it abundantly clear that this is God who is providing the land. Not only will God provide the land, God is the one who is going to fight for the land. And listen to what Joshua says, or God says to Joshua, the, the, what happens in the story in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Joshua was by Jericho, so this is 
right before they enter the enter, enter into the city of Jericho, before the walls fall down. You're familiar with the story. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Verse 14. And he said, No. No. Joshua's like, that's not what I asked. Are you for us or for our enemies? No. Why? He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face on the earth and he worshiped and he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, such an interesting exchange, isn't it? What God is telling Israel in this moment is like, listen, guys, this is my agenda. These are my promises. I'm not some sidekick to get on your agenda. I am the Lord God Almighty. The place where you are standing is holy. And you must get on my agenda. How often do we do that, though, church? How often do we pray, not God, thy will be done, but God, my will be done, and why don't you come along and make it happen? And that's exactly why the Lord said to Joshua, no. No. Why? Because I am for the Lord's agenda, for the Lord's will. Not your will or your adversary's will. I'm for the Lord's will. And that's why, church, we must continually surrender ourselves to God's will. We must continually pray, God, your will be done, not my will be done. But so often, it's so easy to get sucked into that that thing of saying, oh, I really want this or I desire this, so God, just please make it happen. Without even seeking, saying, God, is this your will? Is this what you desire? Scripture says that when, when we align our desires with God desi- God's desires, He gives us the desires of our heart. But when our desires are not aligned with God's desires, it can lead us on a path that, will, as we'll see shortly in this story, that can lead to destruction. Well, the book of Joshua ends with Israel established in the land. They've conquered the land. They've taken possession of the land. God has fought for them because they've aligned themselves with His agenda, with His will, and God has fought for them. And He's accomplished what they could not accomplish on their own. And we see at the end of Joshua, God fulfilling another part of this promise to Abraham. He's already made them a great nation. He did that in Egypt. They came out of Egypt as a great nation. And now, at the end of Joshua, he's given them a great land. They are in the land that God had promised them. God continues to show himself faithful. That's one thing if you understand, I want you to understand when it comes to God's covenant promises, is that God is always, always, always faithful. What he promises will come to pass. May not always be in our timing, 
may not always be in the way that we want it to happen, but what He promises will always come to pass. But here's the problem. God commanded Israel to run their pagan neighbors out of the land, to drive them out of the land. Why? So He could establish this covenant people for Himself. But here's the problem. Israel fails to do so. They fail to drive out these pagan neighbors from their land. Why? Because Israel desires to be like them. Israel doesn't drive them out of the land because Israel envies them. He wants to be like, they want to be like them. In church, that same thing happens to you and I. When we put our focus and our heart on what the world offers. We know that God says to be in the world but not of the world. But it's hard to do when we envy, when we chase after what the world offers us. And that's exactly what Israel does. They're chasing after. They want what the world offers. And so therefore they don't fulfill what God told them to do. And then we get to the time of Judges. Joshua dies. He has led Israel to be faithful to the Lord. But once Joshua passes away, what happens is we see in the book of Judges this pattern that continues over and over and over again. There's sin and rebellion. There's judgment, repentance, deliverance, and peace. Sin, judgment, deliverance, uh, repentance, deliverance, and peace. You see it happen over and over and over again. What happens is the people of, of God rebel against God. They begin to chase after the gods of the nations that surround them. The people that they should have run out. They begin to chase after those gods. They begin to worship other gods. They begin to have their devotion focused on other things besides the Lord. They break the first commandment. Love the Lord your God. And worship no one before Him. They break that commandment. And they fall into sin. So what God does, God brings judgment. And God's, God allows those nations to overtake His people. He allows them to go into, to be taken captive. To 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 be judged in that way. Then they begin to repent and pray and seek the Father again, seek God again. And as a result, God raises up a judge. And, and when you think about judge, don't think about someone in a robe sitting in a courtroom. Think about a military leader. God raises up these military leaders called judges, and those judges deliver God's people, and then they have a time of peace until the judge dies. And then the cycle repeats itself. And they go into sin and judgment and repentance and deliverance and peace. And you see that throughout the time of Judges. In fact, you could sum up the entire book of Judges with the very last verse. The very last verse, Judges 21-25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? When Jesus is not king, we tend to do what is right in our own eyes. Now, Israel was supposed to have God as their king. But Israel wanted more than a covenant to define them and God to lead them and judges to deliver them when they got off track. What Israel wanted was a king. 
Why did they want a king? Because the other nations had one. They wanted to be like the other nations. And so God says, okay, you can have a king. I'll give you what you want, but there's a caveat to that. God tells them you can have a king, but it comes with this dire warning. And God tells the nation of Israel that no matter how noble it begins, no matter how righteous the kingdom starts, earthly kingdoms always drift towards keeping power at all costs. Earthly kingdoms always tend to enslave their own people. And that's exactly what happens with Israel. These kings begin to fight for power at all costs. Isn't it odd how things have not changed in thousands of years? Like every earthly kingdom, every earthly government, what are they searching for? What are they longing for? More power, more control, more more money, more of everything. And, and, And God warned them of this. God said, this is going to happen. If you do not follow me as your king, this will happen. And that's exactly what happens. All of Israel's earthly kings, they should have been people that were pointing God's people to God. They should have been kings that were leading them and reminding them of the covenants of God. They should have been pointing them and saying, you know what, we're going to put God first. We're going to make God Lord. We're going to follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here's the problem, they don't do it. They do the exact opposite. These earthly kings of Israel were either too greedy, too proud, or too stupid to lead God's people well. And they lead them in rebellion. They lead them into idolatry. They lead them away from serving the Lord. I know you're familiar with King David. Now, David was by far the greatest king of all of Israel. His is like this amazing Cinderella story that one day we'll do a series on his life. And and this Cinderella story of a shepherd boy made king. David was described as a man after God's own heart. And God makes a promise, a covenant with David. And here's what God says to David. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And beginning in verse 8, it says this. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Let's skip down to, uh, to verse uh, 12, 13. Um, in verse 12, it says this, When your days are fulfilled. So David, when you die and you lie down with your fathers and you're buried, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So God's making this promises, this promise right here to, to David. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And he says this, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for what? Forever. Now we know that David has a son named Solomon. 
Solomon builds a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord, just like he says in verse 13. But we also know that Solomon dies. So what is God talking about? Well, let's keep going. And I will be a father to him. And he shall be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But, look at verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In verse 16, this is again the promise that God makes to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So he's saying to, to David, this is the promise I'm making you. This is the covenant that I'm making with you. That your kingdom will last forever. That it will never end. How does God do that? Through Jesus. Jesus is called the son of David in the New Testament. And Jesus establishes David's kingdom for all eternity. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Because God is always faithful. Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is from the line of David. And as a result, God keeps his promises. Now, we mentioned Solomon a minute ago. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man the world has ever known. But here's the problem. By the time Solomon dies, he is, only, he is just a brilliant fool. All the wisdom in the world could not keep Solomon from chasing after other gods. And that's exactly what he does. He has this divided heart. His, his heart's not, he's not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And he begins to chase after the Lord and then chase after the world. Chase after the things of God and then chase after the things that his foreign wives bring in, the pagan gods. And he begins to worship them. And as a result, he begins to lead Israel to worship them as well. And by the time Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel is divided. It's divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, and, as, a, and as a result of, of Solomon's sin. So at his death, the kingdom splits in two. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. But here's the problem, church. Things go from bad to worse. Now, I want, you, I want you to think about this for a minute. This is a people that God has rescued from Egypt. This is a people that, that, that have been placed in the promised, hand, promised land by God's own hand. God fought for them. This is a people that have been given the purpose to reflect God's character, to be image bearers, as we've talked about. And yet, they become more and more like the world around them. They become more and more like the unbelieving nations that surround them, refusing to serve the Lord, refusing to stand out any way from the world around them. Church, you and I have been given a task to be image bearers, to be carriers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go into all the world to make disciples. And if we look more like the world than we do like God's family, guess what? We're going to be incredibly ineffective at reaching this world for Christ. 
And that's exactly what Israel's doing. They are called to be image bearers of God, and they're only looking more and more like the world around them. They're not living separate. They're not living holy. They're not set apart. They're living and desiring to be more and more like the unbelieving pagans, the unbelieving world around them, and that's exactly what happens to them. And each king leads them further and further away from the Lord. In fact, you can read about the kings and kings and chronicles, and and if you look at the, the, the kings of Israel in particular, the northern kingdom, the, the best way to describe it is the way the Scripture describes it. And it says this. You'll see this description over and over and over again. It says, they, meaning the king, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, that is the best description their kings ever had, that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Literally, none of them are good. They all continue to lead God's people further and further away from God's purposes and God's plans for their lives. Now, the kings of Judah are slightly different. They're more of a mixed bag. And uh, the kings of Judah would either, would either indulge in the idolatry of Solomon or they would remain faithful uh, to God like King David did. And, and, and you would have some kings that would lean one way, some kings that would lead the other, some kings that at the beginning of their life would be Devoted to the Lord by the end of their life, they would be uh, indulging in the, in the idolatry of Solomon. And, and you just see that over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. But despite all of that, this is, where it, this is where the story gets amazing. Despite all of that, despite Israel's rejection of God, despite, despite Israel's rebellion against God, God remains faithful to them. And no matter how far Israel... God's people drift from him. God continually comes back and reminds them that he's not finished with them. And as you see in the, toward the end of your Old Testament, what happens is these voices of ones calling out in the wilderness begin to rise up, begin to call out to the people of God, begin to speak to the nation of Israel. These people called prophets, which are just prophets who were God's way of speaking to his dysfunctional family, the nation of Israel. And that's what we see over and over again. These prophets, uh, throughout the prophetic books, um, God raising up prophets to speak to his people. Now, as you read through your Old Testament, you read the prophetic books in the Old Testament, they, they come from that period surrounding the, the divided kingdom and then the exile of the kingdom, where both kingdoms are actually exiled from the land that God had promised. The prophets warned of God's judgment. He said the prophets continually called God's people to repentance. They said, listen, if you don't repent, if you don't turn back to God, judgment will happen. The prophets also ministered to God's people in exile. Because God's people don't repent, and they do go into exile, we'll see in just a moment, God uses these prophets to say, listen, this is not the end of your story. I'm not done with you yet. And they're a reminder that God was continually remembering his people and that God would never forget his covenants. See, what the prophets really were were megaphones of truth in a culture and in a people that were hard of hearing. And the prophets continued to announce that God is going to remain faithful even if Israel remains unfaithful. 
Now, we often think of prophets as, as like some fortune tellers, right? Like, we think of prophets as these people that are declaring these wild and crazy things that are going to happen in the future. But really, what the prophets in your Old Testament are, are truth tellers. They're declaring painful but real truth of what will happen to the nation of Israel if they do not surrender and follow God. If they do not repent of their sin and turn back to God. And the prophets in the Old Testament, they were the crazy ones. They were the ones that, that, that were unimpressed with the status quo. They were the ones that were willing to stare authority in the face and say that there is a greater king that we must follow, and he is God. I think God's church needs more Christians that will stand up and be that in our culture, right? People that will stand up and you know what? I am not comfortable with the status quo. I'm not comfortable with the status quo of just showing up to church, singing a few songs, maybe putting money in a plate, and then going home and then just repeating that every Sunday. No, I'm going to speak the truth. I am going to follow this king. I'm going to surrender everything I have to King Jesus. I'm going to follow him no matter what happens around me. I am going to remain faithful to God. We need more and more Christians to stand up and say, I want to be counted as one who will follow God no matter what. And that's what these prophets did. And, and you see, they have some crazy eccentric Hebrew names. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Some of them weep. Some of them shout. Some of them wear strange clothes and eat odd things. But here, here's the one thing that all of them have in common. All of them preach the same message. Repent. That's the message that they preached. We don't like that message, do we? We don't like to hear someone say to repent. Like, that's for those Bible thumpers and street preachers, right? Those are the ones that call us to repentance. What we want is someone to just make us feel good and make us have those warm fuzzies when it comes to, to hearing God's Word taught. No, God is calling each and every one of us to repentance. He's calling me to repentance. He's calling you to repentance. What does repentance mean? turning from my own ways, turning from my sin, and turning to God. That's all it means. And each and every one of us are called to repent, to constantly keep short accounts with God, that when we do sin, we don't, we don't stay in it, we repent and turn back to the Father, who's there with open arms, ready to receive us and welcome us with His grace. But that's the message of the prophets. They were calling God's people to repentance. That's what we need as well. We need repentance in our own lives. We need to constantly be repenting of our sins, of turning to God. And as you read through the prophets, you see God's, God's judgment, His pain, His broken, hearted, His broken heart over His people's sin. In fact, Jeremiah 3, you can read it on your own, but Jeremiah 3 describes what Israel was doing to God as a spouse committing adultery. Think about the, the, the broken trust when that occurs in a, in a marriage. And what God is saying, Israel, that's exactly what you have done to me. You have broken the covenant 
that we have made with one another. And because of their unfaithfulness, God promises to remove them from the land. And they end up in exile. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian army captures the northern kingdom, Israel. And they wipe out the nation, the nations, the northern tribes of Israel off the map. We don't hear from them again. And then in 586 B.C., the southern tribe of Judah ends up with the same fate. Only this time it's by the hands of the Babylon. But here's the beauty of God's promise. Here's, here's the amazing thing about God's promise. God, even though, even though Judah had rebelled against God, even though they too had worshipped idols, moved away from God, God remembers His promise. And He treats Judah, the southern tribe, different than He did the northern tribe. Why? Because that is the tribe of David. And God had made a promise to David that his throne would remain forever. So what does God do? Yes, they are punished for their sin. There is consequences for their sin. They are exiled from the land. Just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, God's people had been removed from the land. But God preserved a remnant of Judah. And over time, that remnant begins to open God's word and see God's promises and they begin to repent of their sin. They begin to turn back to God. After a generation of wasting away in a foreign land, God's people would then begin to weep and moan over their sin. They would begin to see how far They've drifted from the Lord. And they would turn to Him and repent and, and, and surrender once again to Him. Church, that's really what revival is. It's, a recon, it's recognizing how far we have drifted from God's purpose. See, oftentimes we think of revival and we confuse it with, with what you would call revivalism, which is, you know, like the, the tent meeting where, like, we go and kind of construct that in our own thing and we invite a guest speaker to come in. But what revival is is when God's people are awakened, reawakened to the purposes of God. And we see that movement happening in our culture now, right? We see that happening with, with college students all over, all over, the, all over our country. And God is raising up a new generation that are going to surrender to Him. That are going to follow Him. But He doesn't just want to do it with college students. He wants to do it with each and every one of us. He wants each and every one of us to come to Him and say, God, I have gotten off path. I have drifted away from Your ways. I want to surrender and repent of how far I've gone from where You desire me to be. That's the call that God has for each and every one of us. And there's this small remnant in Israel that begins to get it and begins to, to turn back to the ways of God. And after a generation, many of these exiles, this remnant, are allowed to go back in to the land. But in a lot of ways, even though they've gone back into the land, they're still in exile. They're still under the rule of a pagan king. They're still under the hand of a pagan nation. And, and, and despite being physically in the land, there are times where it seems like God's presence is absent. 
It seems like God is not keeping up his covenant promises. But here's what I want you to know. The prophets are not without hope. They're not without hope. Hope that they have is fueled by God's promises. Israel's only hope. Judah's only hope. Our only hope is that God will keep his promises. That God will always keep his promises. And see, one of the major points that the prophets give is that even though our, as bad as our sin is, as bad as our rebellion is, as much as you and I need to repent, God must act in his sovereign grace if you and I want to be saved. And the prophets continually remind the people of, of God that. That you can't save yourself. You can't bring about salvation and redemption for yourself. Only God can do that. Only God can bring about redemption. Only God can save. Either God will act to save us, or there will be no salvation. <coughs> That's the message that the prophets give. In fact, uh, Jonah reminds us that salvation is of the Lord. And he just echoes what many of the other prophets said. And along that same time, there's another promise that is alongside those promises. If you go back all the way to the beginning when we started this, we started looking at Genesis 3. And God promised that from the seed and offspring of Eve, he would bring about a redeemer. And then we see here in this promise to David that that promised son from Genesis 3 would be from David's line. He would be a Davidic king. And now we get to, to Isaiah. And I want us to look at some of these passages in Isaiah. Because it just puts all this picture into play, into, into, into focus of what God is doing. So here in Isaiah, and we're going to read these pretty quick. So um, hang tight. But in Isaiah... What Isaiah tells us, he gives us this picture of who this king, this Messiah, will be. And he shows us characteristics and personality and, and, and who the king will be. And he says, first of all, he's going to be born of a virgin and he will bear the name of God. Listen to Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord said, the Lord himself said, I will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the child, this Messiah, is going to be born of a virgin. And he shall bear the name of God. He shall be called Emmanuel. Flip over to Isaiah 9, verse 6. He goes on to say, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Isaiah is talking about this Messiah that will come. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What else? Mighty God, he's going to be God himself, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But not only that, David also says he's going to sit on David's throne. That's part of what God has promised. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is going to keep his promise. Flip over to 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. 
It says this, There shall come forth from the shoot, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Again, this is talking about the Messiah. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So what he's saying is that, that this Messiah will become will come from the tribe of David, from the tribe of Judah, the line of David. But God's not done. Go flip over to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God continues to show and tell us who this Messiah is going to be. And Jeremiah announces to us that this, this Messiah will bring about a new and better covenant. Listen to what he says in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, I want you to, let's, let's, let's stop right there for just a minute. We know that the Old Testament and New Testament can also be called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So what Jeremiah is saying is that there will come a new covenant. Where do we find the new covenant? In the New Testament, through Jesus. So let's keep going. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the, I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. So there's the Exodus right there. My covenant that they broke, we've been talking about that over and over again. They've continually rebelled against God, continually moved away, broken God's covenant with him. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So again, that imagery of, of, of adultery is what he's talking about. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall, know, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin. No more. Now, given the fact that God is faithful, and given the fact that you and I are sinful, how is God going to bring about this redemption? How is He going to reconcile our sin with His holiness? Our sin with His righteousness? How is He going to do that? How is He going to make it where humanity can be restored? For humanity can, can be in this new covenant with God. How can God and man be reconciled? Let me give you a hint. He's been telling us the entire time. Throughout this story, remember this is one story that scripture teaches. God has been telling us how all along. Remember back to Exodus. When God tells the nation of Israel to sacrifice a lamb, a Passover lamb, and to put the blood on their doorpost. Why? So that God's judgment would pass over them. And remember the sacrificial system that God put in place where a substitute which all those sacrifices, all those, all, those, all those 
sacrifices that were made at the altar were substitutes in our place to bear our sin. And the prophets speak of a future substitute, one that will solve our sin problem fully and forever. Isaiah 53, you can go ahead and begin turning there. Isaiah tells us that God will reconcile with mankind through a suffering servant, one who will come that will bear our sin and that, and that will be our substitute. Listen to what Isaiah, Isaiah 53 says. This is amazing when you see how God has been working all along in order to show us how we can be reconciled with him in this new covenant. Look at verse, verse uh, Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. He, this is the Messiah, was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. He was esteemed, and we esteemed him not. Look at verse 4. Surely he, was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us what? Peace. What is that peace? Peace with God reconciliation, restoration with God. Why? Because Jesus was pierced on that cross for our transgressions. That he was crushed for our iniquities. Let's keep going. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of of us all. So on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of our iniquity. Why? Because each and every one of us have gone astray. Each and every one of us have drifted away from God. None of us are righteous. Paul says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who, cons- who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, Jesus lived a sinless life. The life that you and I could not sin. Which is why it was possible for him to die for our sins. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for the guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes 
intercession for the transgressors. I want to go back to verse 11 real quick. I want you to see what happens here. He says that Jesus, this Messiah, the one who brought and institutes the new covenant, which we'll talk about next week, that he bore our iniquities. And what does he give us in exchange? His righteousness. You and I are counted as righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because his blood covers us, God's judgment passes over us, and we are credited as having his very own righteousness. How does that happen? When we place our faith and our trust in him. When we believe that we cannot save ourselves. When we believe that we cannot be redeemed on our own. And we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And follow him. Walk with him. Then it says that our iniquity is an exchange for his righteousness. Now. Unfortunately, the Old Testament is a story without an end. Now, we've just given you a little brief uh, glimpse into how the story continues. But the Old Testament ends without an ending. The Messiah has yet to come. The promised one has not shown up. This new, better covenant, this final covenant has not been fulfilled. All that Israel is left with when you read your Old Testament are longings and hopes. Longing for God to return and restore His people. Hoping that God will keep His promise. Longing for this one that will save His people. Hoping that God will once again rule and reign. And that's where we leave off. And it's not until 400 years later, that time between Malachi and Matthew that God begins to reveal His promise and keep His promise. So, I mean, you can see a long period of time between these longings and hopes and desires of Israel and, the, and God actually keeping His promise. But here's what I want you to know. All of Israel's future, all of their hope, our future and our hope all rest on the fact that God always keeps his promises. Listen, if we ever lose that, church, if you ever lose that, that God doesn't keep his promises, then you're going to begin to lose hope. You're going to begin to, to, to lose faith, and have doubts. But when we can hold on to that fact that God always keeps his promises, we can remain strong and steadfast. And that's what Israel holds on to, the fact that God will keep his promises. And just when all hope seems lost, just when it seems like it's over, when nothing can come, come to fruition, when, when all seems lost, God does send the only one. The only one who is worthy to sit on David's throne. The only one who is able to fulfill the promises. The only one, Emmanuel, God with us, who is the suffering servant described in Isaiah 53, who will become our substitutionary sacrifice. And as a result, the world will never be the same. If you want to discover how, how that happens and why that happens, be back here next week.